I'm sharing a bit of camaraderie with my brother Aaron this morning. I can say, for the first time, these robes are hot. Only 12 verses into his gospel, John, the apostle, writes for us, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The apostle John writes this because he maybe more than any New Testament writer, loves to speak of us as God's children. And not just the cold, austere, legal language of custody rights in a courtroom. But he loves to speak of us as God's children, as dearly loved, jump up into the arms in the lap of a smiling, laughing father kind of children. And in our passage this morning... He's going to speak of what it means to resemble, to look like, to wear the DNA, so to speak, of God our Father and of our brother, God the Son, the Lord Jesus. From what Aaron told us last week, chapter 2 of 1 John tells us that some who used to be part of the community of faith that John is writing to, some had recently left. And they left not because they wanted more programs that the church was offering down the street, And they left not because they found a church that was a little closer to home, a little more convenient drive for them. They left because they began to believe and teach false things about Jesus. And their lack of purity and broken relationships with other Christians were evidence of this. And so John had to remind those faithful Christians who had remained that they had been anointed with the true gospel of Jesus... And the Spirit had created new spiritual life within them as a result. And because of this, they had no need for another outside teaching. A different gospel, a different Jesus, because they already had the truth. Well, this morning, we, like John's audience, will see that because we too have been anointed by this true gospel message, and His Spirit has come to abide in us, That because we have been made members of God's family, His children, we are now called to abide in Christ as a result. Little Christians and little theologians, I have one question for you to be thinking about this morning. What is one word, one word that you could use to describe your relationship to God from our passage this morning? One word. How does God think of you? What is your relationship to Him? I'll let you know right now there's more than one right answer. There's great gospel truth for us this morning in this passage about our relationship to God. This is the good news of our being made members of a new family as we find it in 1 John chapter 2, verse 26 through chapter 3, verse 10. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears we may have confidence 
and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. And no one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as He is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Join me as we pray. Father, our hearts rejoice the announcement this morning. We're thankful for the ways in which you've taken care of us. Ways in which you've watched over us these last couple years. Ways in which you have proven yourself to be a faithful, loving, always near and present Father through our chief shepherd who walks among his sheep and tends us so well. Father in heaven, we ask once again for the spirit of enlightenment, your Holy Spirit, that would enlighten our minds to give us understanding into your word, to help us see how you are calling us out to lovingly pursue the resemblance of Jesus because ultimately we've been promised that by your grace you are transforming us into his image. And it is a work you will finish. We ask these things in the name of the Son and by the Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I suppose that the debate will always rage on eternally about nature versus nurture. A lot of us have heard about this before. It's the debate about whether the way a person is born or the way a person is by nature, all that they come into this world with, if that is what influences their future decisions and who they become, or whether the more important pieces come from the way a person is raised, the way they're nurtured, the influences of their environment growing up. Ellen and I often have people who don't know our family very well, Tell us that Aubrey, our daughter, has her mother's smile. Or her father's rugged and stunning and Hollywood-esque good looks. 
And then they're even more surprised when they find out that not only do I not work in Hollywood, but that Aubrey is in fact adopted. Her genetic pool is completely free of burger floaties. And so people will comment on how even more amazing it is that she can look like us or do things the way that we do them, even though we're not biologically related. I've gotten a lot of comments since last week about my family who came in last Sunday morning and how much all of us looked very much alike, especially all four of us siblings. But we need to understand that because God is the one and only God, existing from all eternity past, having always been... There are no other gods running around. The Father and the Son and the Spirit have never procreated other gods. Or to put it another way, no created being becomes like them or takes on resemblance to them by way of nature. By way of having the same essence, the same godness or the same stuff of divinity, to put it kind of crassly that they share in equally as one God. So when God says that we are his children in this passage, and when he calls us to resemble him, to look like him, it is through the transforming ministry of the Spirit that this happens. He brings us into his family, and then raises us in his family, nurturing us, teaching us, disciplining us, mentoring us, to look more and more like him. But, Like any good parent, he doesn't nurture us while we sit on the couch watching Nickelodeon and eating Doritos. This isn't his way. This isn't his method. He's too good of a parent to enable our laziness. Rather, he is a good parent who gradually works his transforming grace into us, not separated from our effort and work and discipline, but rather through our effort and work and discipline. And in our passage this morning, this work is called abiding. Abiding. At the end of chapter 2, verse 27, John says that this Holy Spirit-empowered gospel that has saved you now teaches you to abide in Him. And again, in verse 28, John repeats it, little children abide in Him. How do we abide in Him? How do we abide in Jesus? What does this mean and how do we do it? Well, our passage points to two ways. Two ways. First, we abide in Him by growing in resemblance to God our Father and His Son, the Lord Jesus. And secondly, we abide by resting in the promise of His homecoming and the comfort of knowing that He will always keep us members of His family. The word abide is not new for John, and it's really not even that new for us. We heard Jesus using it during our series in the Gospel of John in chapter 15 when he called for the disciples to abide in him like a branch abides in the vine. The word abide is a verb, but the noun form is abode. The English word abode or home. And here in 1 John chapter 2 and 3, John is reminding us of what Jesus had said in John 15. Make your home in Jesus. Remain in Jesus. 
permanently live with Him like the family members that you are and grow in likeness to Him and to the Father. And we grow in resemblance to God in three ways. All found tied together in a holistic, raw, untampered with gospel. We grow in resemblance to Him by faith, what we believe about the gospel, and our faith in the message of the gospel. We grow in resemblance to Him in our holiness, the way we live out the gospel, in our purity, our moral purity, and in resemblance to Him through love, the way that we relate to others and treat others in the gospel. The growing prevalence of grocery stores like Whole Foods and Central Market all stores I know a lot of us in this room enjoy going to, the growing prevalence of these types of stores points to an upward trend of Americans wanting organic food. We want the world to stop messing with our food. Leave it alone. Stop taking apart, stop taking something out of it, and stop adding things to it. I think some of us would like it if grocery stores would just start planting fruit trees all around the building so they can overhang the building and the fruit can just fall right into the produce section. We don't even need anybody to pick it for us. But in the same way, the gospel is holistic. It's, it's a package. You can't add things to it and you're not supposed to take it apart. It must be believed, and it must be lived out in purity, and it must be lived out in loving relationships. And as modern Christians, we're so good at splitting things apart to study and to analyze. We like trying to find out how things work, which things are most important in a system that makes the rest of the system run. And we do this with the gospel too, unfortunately at times, reducing the gospel down to one thing that we like, that we think is the most important to emphasize while giving second place or even ignoring the rest. So, for example, a lot of current liberal mainstream Christianity will cut off the relationship, the loving relationship part of the gospel and elevate it very high and say that it's positive relationships with others. That's what Christianity is all about, positive relationships with others. It's not about doctrine, and it's not about antiquated ethics and morals. It's about living in harmony and acceptance of others, they will often say. This often happens at the expense of those beliefs that create life to begin with, and at the expense of moral purity and truth. And in reaction to this, much of conservative much of the conservative Christian right will come back with a strong moral response and will say, They'll cut off the ethical dimension of the gospel, the moral dimension of the gospel, and raise it far above. And they'll say, no, 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 no. Christianity is all about conforming your life to biblical ethics. That's what it's about. It's about keeping ourselves sexually pure. And it's about handling our money and raising our children biblically. It's about godly marriages between a man and a woman. And it's about caring for human dignity and human life from the womb to the tomb and being socially and culturally and politically active to promote these things. But then their message can begin to sound like reducing Christianity to high morality 
and nothing more. And so the more doctrinally careful response often shouts, Hey, where's the saving gospel message in any of this? Where's the concept of our salvation resting in the work of Christ alone, given to us by grace alone, through faith alone? Christianity is not primarily about positive relationships with others, and it's not about doing good things or even keeping ourselves away from bad things. In fact, don't you dare preach to us messages which tell us what we should be doing at all. Just give us messages that only include what has been done for us and nothing more. Christianity isn't about commands, they say, and it's not about ooey-gooey relationships as though God is a big boyfriend up in the sky for us. It's about doctrinal content, and it's about a message that we believe and we understand and we proclaim to create more believers and more understanderers. And in this passage, like so much of the rest of 1 John, John is telling us to stop splitting the gospel apart. He's telling us that abiding in Jesus, growing in family resemblance to the Father and Son, means holding fast to a doctrinally sound gospel, believing right doctrinal content. That's how life comes. That's how life is produced. That's how it begins, by grace through faith. But that it's also holding fast to a gospel that is lived out in purity, holiness. And it's also a gospel that is to be lived out by holding fast to the idea that we cannot wait We cannot wait to get to know others and to pour out the love of God upon them. And even though we don't see John listing these three parts of a holistic gospel in the passage in a nice clean list, he points to these three things mainly through the heaviness of his warnings. This passage has got a lot of warnings in it, a lot of heaviness. Look down at your Bibles and see that in chapter 3, verse 4, John writes, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And I want you to understand this morning that I think this is a very key verse to understanding this entire passage. I believe that John is kind of giving us an interpretive key in verse 4 for how he's using a lot of the language of sin in this passage. And he's helping us understand that every time he uses phrases like make a practice of sinning in verses 4 and 8 and 9, or the the phrase keeps on sinning in verses 6 and 9, He is speaking of a very specific, particular type of sin. He's speaking of the sin of lawlessness. Lawlessness is a very weighty term for sin in Scripture, usually referring to the sin of apostasy or leaving the true faith, walking away from the faith in its entirety. The early church had a very rich vocabulary for apostasy, for walking away from the faith, just like it had a very rich vocabulary for redemption. In the Psalms, lawlessness refers to those who have turned away from God to the point that they are considered apostates, those disowning the faith and can no longer be considered as people. When Jesus uses the word, it's usually referring to those 
deserving and destined for hell in the Gospels, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, he uses it that way. And I think a good cross-reference passage for our study this morning of 1 John 3 is Hebrews 3, verse 12, where the writer warns his readers of those who have an evil heart of unbelief and falling away from the living God. And in the view of Reformed theology, this is speaking of those who may have confessed to being part of the people of God at one point, but who later show by their unbelief that they were never born of God. In our passage this morning, John can't mean by these phrases that a true believer doesn't sin. He can't mean that. He can't even mean that true believers don't sin a lot, or don't wrestle with doubt, or don't struggle with their faith. And we know that he can't mean this because in chapter 1, verse 8, through chapter 2, verse 1, John argues that to deny that we have sin means that we're not walking in the light. We're not being truthful. In fact, to say such things that we have no sin makes God a liar. Which is why we need Jesus as our daily advocate, always bringing the blood of his sacrifice before the Father to plead our forgiveness and his own righteousness. But John is warning us that a heart that continually revels in sin, that's unrepentant of it, over time begins to give evidence of a heart that never received saving faith to begin with. That a heart that shows increasing disinterest and hostility towards wanting to resemble the divine family is a heart that might not be in the family. And for John, he is warning against these things, not in terms of an event or a line crossed in the sand, but in terms of a life direction. That's how he's using his language. He's saying, basically he's saying, look, no one who is abiding in Jesus, growing in resemblance to the Father and the Son and the Spirit, no one who is pursuing maturity in Christ, who's hating his sin, fighting her sin, is going to be at the same time walking in the direction of disowning the faith, pushing away repentance, denying the need for confession and forgiveness. You can't be walking in both directions at the same time. That's what he's saying. You're either walking in one direction or you're walking in the other. You can't be going north and south at the same time. And to illustrate this point, in verse 8, John reaches over and he grabs the biggest apostate of all time, the devil himself. John says to his congregation, whoever walks in the direction of leaving the faith by confessing a different Jesus, resulting in unholy living and broken relationships with the people of God, whoever's doing these things is walking down the same path the devil walked. In the beginning, long ago, Lucifer left the worship of the true God. He gave himself over to rebellion and impurity, and he left the community of holy angels, breaking all fellowship with God and with his angelic brethren. But the Son of God appeared in the flesh as a human being and died and rose again to destroy the devil's power, which is in death, and to daily destroy the devil's works by living out his holiness 
through the good news, the good works he does in us and through us. And for us, John is telling us to grow in resemblance to our Father and Jesus our brother by abiding, by holding fast to the holistic gospel of true doctrine, pure lives, and loving our brothers, as it says in verse 10. Because this is the holistic gospel that those who are keeping on sinning were leaving. They were leaving those things. And he's saying, no, 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 you abide in Jesus by holding fast to those things and, and walking in the direction of those things. Now, most of you probably won't be surprised to hear about where we as a church are strong in these three areas. We have a history of being very doctrinally strong. I don't think anyone in our presbytery or anyone who has visited us, nor anyone who's been a long-time member has thought or said, Ah, New St. Peter's. Let's just say they're very doctrinally loose over there. Questionable. They're just a wolf's den of heresy over at that theater. I think we've been pretty doctrinally sound as a church. I'd say we've been more than doctrinally sound, actually. I'd say we're a little bit of a collection of doctrinal professionals to some extent. And I'm not complaining about that. I'm not complaining about that at all, actually. In fact, you might be surprised at my response to that. My response to our doctrinal quasi-obsession as a church is great, good. I'm glad for it, very glad for it. Nowhere in Scripture do you find a prophet or do you find an apostle come to God's people when they're strong in doctrine but weak in other areas and find them saying, ah, you guys should back off doctrine a little bit. You need to take a theology chill pill. You're just so focused on what God has revealed about who He is and about His grace and salvation for you and your need for it that you're just not good at anything else. You don't find that. Instead, what you find are prophets and apostles coming to God's people, like in 2 Peter 1 or in Jesus' letter to the Ephesians in Revelation chapter 2, and saying, I am glad for your strong faith and teaching in your doctrine. Keep it up. But you need to fuse it together with purity and especially love for others. You need to add to your knowledge, Peter will say, in 2 Peter chapter 1. Brotherly love. He has a whole list of virtues there that need to be added to their knowledge. He ends with love in that list. And that's what we need to do as a church. You're never going to hear me say that we need to take our love for theology down a peg or replace it with something else. We need to see it as a strength, as a gift from God. God, by His Spirit, has made us like that. It is evidence of His life. But the gospel is bigger. The gospel is bigger. 
It has more implications for us. Christianity is more than sound doctrine. It's never less. It's never less, but it's more. And for us, we need to particularly do better, I think, in the area of demonstrating love. Not just for one another, which, as I said a couple weeks ago, I think is something that we've grown in tremendously, even in the last year. But we need to grow in demonstrating love for those right outside our door. Those in the apartment complexes behind us. Those refugees who have come to live in our city. Our city, which is the second largest home for international refugees in our country, if I have my facts straight. Or rather, if Cameron Mullins has his facts straight. I can call out Cameron in the middle of a service because he can take it. And we need to work at loving those who are new to our church and helping them to know and feel that they're a part of us quicker. There are many ways in which we can do these things practically, and I'm not going to go into them here, but we need to get ready to be mobilized Not hoard the gospel for ourselves, but take it to others in word and in deed. It's part of living out the gospel that John's talking about. Well, John tells us that as we abide in Christ by growing in resemblance to the Father and the Son through sound doctrine and moral purity and love for others, he also says that we abide by resting in the promises of Jesus' homecoming. By resting in the promise of his homecoming and resting in the comfort of knowing that he will always keep us as members of his family. Chapter 3, verse 1, John says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called the children of God. Far more Then any other New Testament writer, John uses the word for divine love, the Greek word agape, or unconditional, grace-filled love, 90 times in his gospel in his first letter. And this love is great because he's made us his children. The Father has made us his children. Think of that. One modern commentator has said, By God's creative act of love, we belong to God as surely and permanently as children belong to their parents. We do not simply look at a love that is external to us and marvel at its greatness. We know a love that resides within us. For John, this love is not something primarily to be studied to be cut open and dissected in a science lab, nor are we to be even just greatly impressed and awed at it as though we're looking at the Rocky Mountains or staring into the depths of the Grand Canyon. All of that is too external. It doesn't get close enough. This love is closer and it's more intimate. It's more invasive and impossible to ignore. This love is to be experienced in fullness that even transcends the greatest of human loves. It is to be reveled in, and it is to be rejoiced in, and laughed in, and cried in, and doubted in, and hurt in, repaired, and healed in, 
and reassured in. It is a great big divine hug in which you live out all those things. And the even greater news is that this relationship of come to the dinner table, let me stay up all night with you as you nurse a fever of 102, let me pick you up, let me wipe away your tears and clean up your scraped knees, let me sit and cry with you after you've been rejected by your boyfriend, let me weep at your own disappointments more than you weep for them yourself. This kind of love, because this is the analogy John's using. This kind of love has been bestowed upon us, and it has been dispo- dis- bestowed upon us right now, today, this morning. In verse 1, John says, We are called children of God, and so we are. Not, and so we will be. Not, and we were. But we are. He says in verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. The good news of the gospel is not that we used to have no relationship with God, but now we have a very cordial and formal relationship. We used to hate him, but now because of Jesus, on very special days, we can come and have tea with the king. We can come have tea with the king where, of course, we'll be expected to be on our best behavior and have the best of manners. It's not the analogy John's using. Rather, you're children of this king, not, not with access to his drawing room, but with access to his hug. Access to him. Through his son. And the wonderful news is that by grace, through faith in Christ's work, you are made children of this king, and you are kept as children of this king. In verse 9, John says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning. He cannot, be, he cannot overthrow the faith and commit apostasy because he has been born of God. And I think following the bulk of early church tradition, as well as even John Calvin, it's best to see God's seed here as the saving Holy Spirit who regenerates and gives new birth and who always abides in his people. John is saying that no one who's been born of God by believing the good news about his son is going to ultimately leave the faith and walk into apostasy because the Spirit remains in him, keeping him in the family. And not only has the grace of the Father made us his children, and not only does his grace keep us as his children, but his grace will ultimately succeed at fully changing us transforming us to look more like his son. God's plan is not going to be thwarted. He will do it. Verses 2 and 3 say, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we, will be ha- what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, 
because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We will be transformed completely into the family resemblance of God when Jesus appears. We don't know all that that entails, but we know that we will fully resemble him and we will see the family resemblance with joy. Joy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.